Isaiah chapter 13, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hands that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country from the end of heaven, even the Lord, and the weapons of his indignation, to destroy the whole land. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travelleth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man that golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. And it shall be as a chaste roe and as a sheep that no man taketh up. They shall every man turn to his own people and flee every one into his own land. Every one that is found shall be thrust through and every one that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the meads against them, which shall not regard silver. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. A letter of Mr. Samuel Blair, minister at New Londonbury, to Mr. Prance, minister at Boston, August 6, 1744. Reverend Sir, that it may the more clearly appear that the Lord has indeed carried on a work of true religion among us of late years, I conceive it will be useful to give a brief general view of the state of religion in these parts before this remarkable season. 
I doubt not then that there were some sincerely religious people up and down, and there were, I believe, a considerable number in the several congregations pretty exact, according to their education, in the observance of the external forms of religion, not only as to attendance on public ordinances on the Sabbath, but also to the practice of family worship and perhaps secret prayer too. But with these things, the most part seem to all appearance to rest contented and to satisfy their consciences just with a dead formality in religion. If they perform these duties pretty punctually in their seasons, and as they thought with a good meaning out of conscience and not just to obtain a name for religion among men, then they were ready to conclude that they were truly and sincerely religious. A very lamentable ignorance of the main essentials of true practical religion, and the doctrines nextly relating thereunto very generally prevailed. The nature and necessity of the new birth was but little known or thought of. The necessity of a conviction of sin and misery by the Holy Spirit, opening and applying the law to the conscience in order to a saving closure with Christ, was hardly known at all to the most. It was thought that if there was any need of a heart-distressing side of the soul's danger and fear of divine wrath, it was only needed for the grosser sort of sinners and for any others to be deeply exercised this way, as there might sometimes be before some rare instances observable. This was generally looked upon to be a great evil and temptation that had befallen those persons. The common names for such soul concern were melancholy, trouble of mind, or despair. These terms were in common, so far as I have been acquainted, indifferently used as synonymous, and trouble of mind was looked upon as a great evil, which all persons that made any sober profession and practice of religion ought carefully to avoid. There was scarcely any suspicion at all in general of any danger of depending upon self-righteousness and not upon the righteousness of Christ alone for salvation. Papists and Quakers would be readily acknowledged guilty of this crime, but hardly any professed Presbyterian. The necessity of being first in Christ by a vital union and in a justified state before our religious services can be well-pleasing and acceptable to God was very little understood or thought of. But the common notion seemed to be that if people were aiming to be in the way of duty as well as they could, as they imagined, there was no reason to be much afraid. According to these principles and this ignorance of some of the most soul-concerning truths of the gospel, men were very generally, through the land, careless at heart, and stupidly indifferent about the great concerns of eternity. There was very little appearance of any heart-engagedness in religion, and indeed the wise for the most part were in a great degree asleep with the foolish. It was sad to see with what a careless behavior the public ordinances were attended, and how people were given to unsuitable worldly discourse on a Lord's Day. In public companies a vain and frothy lightness was apparent in the deportment of many professors. Thus religion lay as it were a dying, and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. And it was in the spring in the year 1740 when the God of salvation was pleased to visit us with the blessed effusions of his Holy Spirit in an imminent manner. The first very open and public appearance of this gracious visitation in these parts was in the congregation which God has committed to my charge. 
This congregation has not been erected above 14 or 15 years from this place. The place is a new settlement, generally settled with people from Ireland, as all our congregations in Pennsylvania, except two or three, chiefly are made up of people from that kingdom. I am the first minister they have ever had settled in the place, having been regularly liberated from my former charge in East Jersey, above a hundred miles northeastward from here. The Reverend Presbytery of New Brunswick, of which I had the comfort of being a member, judging it to be my duty, for sundry reasons, to remove from there. At the earnest invitation of the people here, I came to them in the beginning of November 1739, accepted of a call from them that winter, and was formally installed and settled among them as their minister in April following. There were some hopefully pious people here at my first coming, which was a great encouragement and comfort to me. I had some view and sense of the deplorable condition of the land in general, and accordingly the scope of my preaching through that first winter after I came here was mainly calculated for persons in a natural unregenerate state. I endeavored, as the Lord enabled me, to open up and prove from His word the truths which I judged most necessary for such as were in that state to know and believe in order to their conviction and conversion. I endeavored to deal certainly and solemnly with them, and through the blessing of God I had knowledge of four or five brought under deep convictions that winter. In the beginning of March I took a journey into East Jersey and was abroad for two or three Sabbaths. A neighboring minister, who seemed to be earnest for the awakening and conversion of secure sinners, and whom I had obtained to preach a Sabbath to my people in my absence, preached to them, I think, on the first Sabbath after I left home. His subject was a dangerous and awful case of such as continue unregenerate and unfruitful under the means of grace. The text was Luke 13:7. Then said he to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Under that sermon there was a visible appearance of much soul concern among the hearers, so that some burst out with an audible noise into bitter crying, a thing not known in these parts before. After I had come home there came a young man to my house under deep trouble about the state of the soul, whom I had looked upon as a pretty light merry sort of a youth. He told me that he was not anything concerned about himself in the time of hearing the above-mentioned sermon, nor afterwards, till the next day he went to his labor, which was grubbing, in order to clear some new ground. The first grub he set about was a pretty large one with a high top, and when he had cut the roots as it fell down, these words came instantly to his remembrance, and as a spear to his heart, Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? So, thought he, must I be cut down by the justice of God for the burning of hell, unless I get into another state than I am now in. He thus came into very great and abiding distress, which to all appearance has had a happy issue, his conversation being to this day as becomes the gospel of Christ. The news of this very public appearance of deep soul concern among my people met me a hundred miles from home. I was very joyful to hear of it, in hopes that God was about to carry on an extensive work of conversion grace amongst them. And the first sermon I preached after my return to them was from Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
After opening up and explaining the parts of the text, when in the improvement I came to press the injunction in the text upon the unconverted and ungodly, and offered this as one reason among others, why they should now henceforth first of all seek the kingdom and his righteousness, that they had neglected too long to do so already, this consideration seemed to come and cut like a sword upon several in the congregation, so that while I was speaking upon it they could no longer contain but burst out in the most bitter mourning. I desired them as much as possible to restrain themselves from making any noise that would hinder themselves or others from hearing what was spoken. And often afterwards I had occasion to repeat the same counsel. I still advise people to endeavor to moderate and bound their passions and not so as to resist or stifle their convictions. The number of the awakened increased very fast. Frequently under sermons there were some newly convicted and brought into deep distress of soul about their perishing estate. Our Sabbath assembly soon became vastly large, many people from almost all parts around inclining very much to come where there was such appearance of the divine power and presence. I think there was scarcely a sermon or lecture preached here through that whole summer, but there were manifest evidences of impression on the hearers, and many times the impressions were very great in general. Several would be overcome and fainting, others deeply sobbing, hardly able to contain, others crying in the most dolorous manner, many others more silently weeping, and a solemn concern appearing in the countenances of many others. And sometimes the soul exercises of some, though comparatively but very few, would so far affect their bodies as to occasion some strange, unusual bodily motions. I had opportunities of speaking particularly with a great many of those who afforded such outward tokens of inward soul concern in the time of public worship and hearing of the word. Indeed, many came to me of themselves in their distress for private instruction and counsel. And I found, so far as I can remember, that with by far the greater part their apparent concern in public was not just in a transient qualm of conscience, or merely a floating commotion of affections, but a rational, fixed conviction of their dangerous perishing estate. They could generally offer as a convicting evidence of their being in an unconverted miserable estate, that they were utter strangers to those dispositions, exercises, and experiences of soul and religion which they heard laid down from God's word as the inseparable characters of the truly regenerate people of God. Even such as before had something of the form of religion, and I think the greater number were of this sort and several had been pretty exact and punctual in the performance of outward duties. They saw they had been contenting themselves with the form without the life and power of godliness, and that they had been taking peace to their conscience from, and depending upon their own righteousness, and not the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In a word, they saw that true practical religion was quite another thing that they had conceived it to be, or had any true experience of. There were likewise many throughout the land brought under deep, distressing convictions that summer who would live very loose lives, regardless of the very externals of religion. In this congregation, I believe, there were very few that were not stirred up to some solemn thoughtfulness and concern more than usual about their souls. The general carriage and behavior of people was soon very visibly altered. Those awakened were much given to reading in the Holy Scriptures and other good books. Excellent books that had lain by, much neglected, were then much perused, and lent from one to another. 
and it was a peculiar satisfaction to people to find how exactly the doctrines they heard daily preached harmonized with the doctrines maintained and taught by great and godly men in other parts in former times. The subjects of discourse almost always when any of them were together were the matters of religion and great concerns of their souls. All unsuitable, worldly, vain discourse on the Lord's Day seemed to be laid aside among them. Indeed, for anything that appeared, there seemed almost a universal reformation in this respect in our public assemblies on the Lord's Day. There was an earnest desire in people after opportunities for public worship and hearing the word. I appointed in the spring to preach every Friday through the summer when I was at home, and those meetings were well attended, and at several of them the power of the Lord was remarkably with us. The main scope of my preaching through that summer was laying open the deplorable state of man by nature since the fall, our ruined exposed case by the breach of the first covenant, and the awful condition of such as were not in Christ, giving the marks and characters of such as were in that condition, and moreover laying open the way of recovery in the new covenant through a mediator, with the nature and necessity of faith in Christ of the mediator, and so on. I labored much on the last-mentioned heads, that the people might have right apprehensions of the gospel method of life and salvation. I treated much on the way of sinners clothing with Christ by faith, and obtaining a right peace to an awakened wounded conscience, showing that persons were not to take peace to themselves on account of their repenting sorrows, prayers, and reformations, nor to make these things the grounds of their adventuring themselves upon Christ and His righteousness, and of their expectations of life by Him and that neither were they to obtain or seek peace in extraordinary ways by vision, dreams, or immediate inspirations, but by an understanding view and believing persuasion of the way of life as revealed in the gospel through the suretyship, obedience, and sufferings of Jesus Christ, with a view of the suitableness and sufficiency of that mediatory righteousness of Christ for the justification and life of law-condemned sinners, and thereupon freely accepting him for their Savior, heartily consenting to and being well pleased with the way of salvation, and venturing thereall upon his mediation, from the warrant and encouragement afforded of God thereunto in his word, by his free offer, authoritative command, and sure promise to those that so believe. I endeavor to show the fruits and evidences of a true faith. In some time many of the convinced and distressed afforded very hopeful, satisfying evidence that the Lord had brought them to a true closure with Jesus Christ, and that their distresses and fears had been in a great measure removed in a right gospel way by believing in the Son of God. Several of them had very remarkable and sweet deliverances this way. It was very agreeable to hear their accounts how that when they were in the deepest perplexity and darkness, distress and difficulty, seeking God as poor, condemned, hell, deserving sinners, the scene of recovering grace through a Redeemer has been opened to their understandings with a surprising beauty and glory, so that they were enabled to believe in Christ with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It appeared that most generally the Holy Spirit improved for this purpose, and made use of some one particular passage or other of the Holy Scriptures that came to their remembrance in their distress, some gospel offer or promise or some declaration of God directly referring to the recovery and salvation of undone sinners by the new covenant. But with some it was otherwise. They had not any particular place of Scripture more than another in their view at the time. 
Those who met with such a remarkable relief as their account of it was rational and scriptural, so they appeared to have had at the time the attendance and fruits of a true faith, particularly humility, love, and an affectionate regard to the will and honor of God. Much of their exercise was in self-abasing and self-loathing and admiring the astonishing condescension and grace of God's towards such vile and despicable creatures that had been so full of enmity and disaffection to him. They freely and sweetly with all their hearts chose the way of his commandments. Their inflamed desire was to live to him forever according to his will and to the glory of his name. There were others that had not such remarkable relief and comfort, who yet I could not but think were savingly renewed and brought truly to accept of the rest upon Jesus Christ, though not with such a degree of liveliness and liberty, strength, and joy. And some of those continued for a considerable time after, for the most part, under a very distressing suspicion and jealousy of their case. I was all along very cautious of expressing to people my judgment of the goodness of their states, excepting where I had pretty clear evidences from them of their being savingly changed, and yet they continued in deep distress, casting off all their evidences. Sometimes in such cases I have thought it needful to use greater freedom that way than ordinary, but otherwise I judged that it could be of little use and might easily be hurtful. Besides those above spoken of, whose experience of a work of grace was in a good degree clear and satisfying, there were some others, though but very few in this congregation that I knew of, who, having very little knowledge or capacity, had a very obscure and improper way of representing their case and relating how they had been exercised. They would chiefly speak of such things as were only the effects of their soul exercise upon their bodies from time to time, and some things that were purely imaginary, which obliged me to be at much pains in my inquiries before I could get any just ideas of their case. I would ask them what were their thoughts, the views and apprehensions of their minds, and exercise of their affections at such times when they felt perhaps a quivering come over them, as they had been saying, or a faintness, or thought they saw their hearts full of some nauseous filthiness, or when they felt a heavy weight or load at their hearts, or felt the weight again taking off and a pleasant warmness rising from their hearts, as they would probably express themselves, which might be the occasions or causes of the things they spoke of. And then when, with some difficulty, I could get them to understand me, some of them would give a pretty rational account of Solomon's spiritual exercises, and upon a thorough careful examination, this way. I could not but conceive good hopes of some such persons, but there were moreover several others who seemed to think concerning themselves that they were under some good work, of whom yet I could have no reasonable ground to think that they were under any hopeful work of the Spirit of God. As near as I could judge of their case from all my acquaintance and con conversation with them, it was much to this purpose. They believed there was a good work going on, that people were convinced and brought into a converted state, and they desired to be converted too. They saw others weeping and fainting and heard people mourning and lamenting, and they thought if they could be like these it would be very hopeful with them. 
hands. They endeavored just to get themselves affected by sermons, and if they could come to weeping or get their passions so raised as to incline them to vent themselves by cries, now they hoped they were God under convictions and were in a very hopeful way, and afterwards they would speak of their being in trouble and aim at complaining of themselves, but seemed as if they knew not well how to do it, nor what to say against themselves. And then they would be looking and expecting to get some text of scripture applied to them for their comfort. And when any scripture text which they thought was suitable for that purpose came to their minds, they were in hopes it was brought to them by the Spirit of God, that they might take comfort from it. And thus, much in such a way as this, some appeared to be pleasing themselves just with an imaginary conversion of their own making. I endeavored to correct and guard against all such mistakes so far as I discovered them in the course of my ministry, and to open up the nature of a true conviction by the Spirit of God and a saving conviction. Version. Thus, I have given a very brief account of the state and progress of religion here through that first summer after the remarkable revival of it among us. Towards the end of that summer, there seemed to be a stop put to the further progress of the work as to the conviction and awakening of sinners, and ever since there have been very few instances of persons convinced. It remains, then, that I speak something of the abiding effects and afterfruits of those awakenings and other religious exercises which people were under during the above-mentioned period. Such as were only under some slight impressions and superficial awakenings seem in general to have lost them all again without any abiding hopeful alteration upon them. They seem to have fallen back again into their former carelessness and stupidity, and some that were under pretty great awakenings and considerably deep convictions of their miserable state seem also to have got peace again to their consciences without getting it by a true faith in the Lord Jesus, affording no satisfying evidence of their being savingly renewed. But through the infinite rich grace of God, and blessed be his glorious name, there is a considerable number who afford all the evidence that can be reasonably expected and required for our satisfaction in the case of their having been the subjects of a thorough saving change, except in some singular instances of behavior, alas for them which proceed from and show the sad remains of original corruption even in the regenerate children of God while in this imperfect state. Their walk is habitually tender and conscientious, their carriage towards their neighbors just and kind, and they appear to have an agreeable peculiar love one for another and for all in whom appears the image of God. Their discourses of religion, their engagedness and disposition of soul and the practice of the immediate duties and ordinances of religion all appear quite otherwise than formerly. Indeed, the liveliness of their affections and the ways of religion is much abated in general, and they are in some measure humbly sensible of this and grieve for it, and are carefully endeavoring still to live unto God. Much grieve with their imperfections and the plagues they find in their own hearts, and frequently they meet with some delightful enlivenings of soul, and particularly our sacramental solemnities for communicating in the Lord's Supper have generally been very blessed seasons of enlivening and enlargement to the people of God.
There is a very evident and great increase of Christian knowledge with many of them. We enjoy in this congregation the happiness of a great degree of harmony and concord. Scarcely any have appeared with open opposition and bitterness against the work of God among us, and elsewhere up and down the land, though there are pretty many such in several other places through the country. Some indeed in this congregation, but very few, have separated from us and joined with the ministers who have unhappily opposed this blessed work. It would have been a very great advantage to this account had I been careful in time to have written down the experiences of particular persons, but this I neglected in the proper season. However, I have more lately noted down an account of some of the soul exercises and experiences of a young woman, but I judge it proper to conceal her name because she is yet living. I was very careful to be exact in the affair, both in my conversing with her and writing the account she gave me of herself immediately after. And though I do not pretend to give her very words for the most part, yet I am well satisfied I do not misrepresent what she had related. The account then is thus. She was first brought to some solemn thoughtfulness and concern about her soul's case by seeing others so much concerned about their souls. When she saw people in deep distress about the state of their souls, she thought with herself how unconcerned she was about her own. And though she thought that she had been very guilty of great sins, yet she feared she was too little concerned about her eternal well-being. And then the sermon she heard made her still more uneasy about her case, so that she would go home on the Sabbath evenings pretty much troubled and cast down, which concern used to abide with her for a few days after, but still towards the end of the week she would become pretty easy. And then, by hearing the word on the Sabbath days, her uneasiness was always renewed for a few days again. And thus it fared with her, till one day she was hearing a sermon preached from Hebrew 3.15. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The minister in the sermon spoke to this effect. How many of you have been hearing the gospel for a long time, and yet your hearts remain always hard, without being made better by it? The gospel is a voice of God, but you have heard it only as a voice of man and not the voice of God, and so have not been benefited by it. These words came with power to her heart. She saw that this was her very case, and she had an awful sense of the sin and of her misimprovement of the gospel of her stupidity, hardness, and unprofitableness under hearing of the word of God. She saw that she was hereby exposed to the sin-punishing justice of God, and was so filled with very great fear and terror. But she said there was no other sin at the time applied to her conscience, neither did she see herself as altogether without Christ. This deep concern on the aforementioned account stuck pretty close by her afterwards. There was a society of private Christians to meet in the neighborhood some day after in the same week for reading, prayer, and religious conference. She had not been at a society of that kind before, but she longed very much for the time of their meeting then, that she might go there, and while she was there she got an awful view of her sin and corruption, and saw that she was without Christ and without grace, and her exercise and distress of soul was such that it made her for a while both deaf and blind. But she said she had the ordinary use of her understanding, and begged that Christ might not leave her to perish, for she saw that she was undone without him. After this she lived in bitterness of soul, 
and at another time she had such a view of her sinfulness, of the holiness and justice of God, and the danger she was in of eternal misery, as filled her with extreme anguish, so that, had it not been that she was supported by an apprehension of God's all-sufficiency, she told me she was persuaded she would have fallen immediately into despair. She continued for some weeks in great distress of spirit, seeking and pleading for mercy without any comfort, until one Sabbath evening in a house where she was lodged during the time of a sacramental solemnity, while the family were singing the 84th Psalm, her soul conceived strong hopes of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And she had such apprehensions of the happiness of the heavenly state that her heart was filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. She sung with such elevation of soul as if she had sung out of herself, as she expressed it. She thought at the time it was as if the Lord had put by the veil and showed her the open glory of heaven. She had very enlarged views of the sufficiency of Christ to save. She was clearly persuaded to the fullest satisfaction that there was merit enough in him to answer for the sins of the most guilty sinner, and she saw that God could well be reconciled to elect sinners in his son, which was a most ravishing, delightful scene of contemplation to her. After this, she continued very much under grievous dejections for about two years, and yet enjoyed considerable sweetness and comfort at times. She often came to hear sermons with a desire to get clearly convinced of her being yet in a Christless state, and with a form resolution to take and apply to herself what might be said in the sermon to the unconverted. But most commonly, she returned very agreeably disappointed. She would generally hear some mark of grace, some evidence of a real Christian laid down which she could lay claim to and could not deny, and thus she was supported and comforted from time to time. During that two years' space, it was still with much fear and perplexity that she had ventured to communicate in the Lord's Supper, but she could not omit it, and she always found some refresh and sweetness by that ordinance. After she had been so long under an almost alternate succession of troubles and supports, the Son of Righteousness at last broke upon her, to the clearest satisfaction and unspeakable ravishment of her soul at a communion table. There her mind was led into the glorious mysteries of redemption with great enlargement, while she meditated on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. She thought with herself he was not just a man who suffered soul for sinners, but infinitely more than a man, even the Most High God the eternal Son equal with the Father, and she saw his being God put an infinite luster and value upon his sufferings as man. Her heart was filled with the most unutterable admiration of his person, his merit, and his love. She was enabled to believe in him with a strong self-evidencing faith. And when she thought that he had suffered for her sins, that she was the very person who by her sins had occasioned his sufferings and brought agony and pain upon him, the consideration of this filled her with the deepest abhorrence of her sins and most bitter grief for them. She said she could have desired with all her heart to have melted and dissolved her body quite away in that very place, in lamentation and mourning over her sins. After this enjoyment, her soul was generally delighting in God, and she had much of the light of his countenance with her, and though her great concern still was how she might live to the Lord, how she might do anything for him and give honor to him, the Lord condescended to be much with her by his enlivening and comforting presence, and especially sacramental seasons were blessed and precious seasons to her.
At one of those occasions, she was in a sweet frame, meditating on the blood and water that issued from the wound made by the spear in her Savior's side. She thought, as water is of a purifying, cleansing nature, so there was sanctifying virtue as well as justifying merit in the Lord Jesus, and that she could no more be without the water, his sanctifying grace, to cleanse her very polluted soul, than she could be without his blood, to do away her guilt. And her heart was much taken up with the beauty and excellency of sanctification. At another time, a communion solemnity likewise, she was very full of delight and wonder with the thoughts of electing love, how that God had provided and determined so great things for her before ever she had a being. And a very memorable enjoyment she had at another time on Monday after a communion Sabbath, when these words came to her mind, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The glory and delight let in upon her soul by these words was so great that it quite overcame her bodily frame. She said it seemed to her that she was almost all spirit, and that the body was quite laid by, and she was sometimes in hope that the union would actually break and the soul get quite away. She saw much at that time into the meaning of the Lord in those words, Because I live, ye shall live also. About a time of sickness she had had, concerning which I had inquired of her, she told me she expected pretty much to die then, and was very joyful at the very prospect of her change, and sensibly grieved to find herself recover again, chiefly because that while she lived here she was so frail and sinful, and could do so little for the Lord's honor. I was with her in the time of that sickness, and indeed I scarcely ever saw one appear to be so fully and sweetly satisfied under the afflicting hand of God. She manifestly appeared to lie under it with a peaceful serenity and divine sweetness in her whole soul. In a word, her whole deportment in the world bespeaks much humility and heavenliness of spirit. One of our Christian friends, a man of about fifty years of age, was removed from us by death in the beginning of May last, of whom I can give some broken and perfect account, which perhaps may be of some use. His name was Hans Kirkpatrick. He was a man of a pretty good understanding, and he had been, I believe, a sober professor for many years, though he had not long been in America. After the work of religion, begun so powerfully amongst us, I found in conversation with him that he believed it to be a good work, but seemed very unwilling to give up his good opinion of his own case. He told me of some concern and trouble he had been in about his soul in his younger years, but yet the case looked suspicious that he had got ease in a legal way upon an outward form of religion. At another time, being at his house and taking up a little book that lay by me on the table, which I had found to be Mr. Mather's dead faith anatomatized and self-judiciary convicted, he said to me that was indeed as strange a book as ever he saw, and that according to that author it was a great thing indeed to have a right faith that was true and saving, another thing than it was generally supposed to be, or to this purpose. He seemed to me at that time to be under more fears about his own case than I had observed in him before. Not long after this, as he was hearing a sermon one day, the word was applied with irresistible evidence and power to his heart, so that he saw himself as yet in a perishing undone case, whereupon the distress and exercise of his soul was so great that he fell off the seat on which he was sitting, and wept and cried very bitterly. 
A little after this, he went to Philadelphia at the time of the meeting of the Synod, in hopes that perhaps he might meet with some benefit to his soul by hearing the ministers preach there, or by conversing with some of them. He told me afterwards that while he was there, and as he walked the streets, he was unspeakably distressed with the view of his miserable condition, so that he could hardly keep his distress from being publicly discerned upon him and that he seemed sometimes to be even in a manner afraid that the streets would open and swallow up such a wretched creature. He told me of his trouble and his very sweet relief out of it, in a most involving manner, under a very fresh sense and impression of both, but the particulars of his relief I have quite forgot. He was afterwards chosen and set apart for a ruling elder in the congregation. He died of an impost hume, and gradually wasted away for a long time before his death, and was for about two months entirely confined to his bed. He told me that for some time before he was laid bedfast he had been full of very distressing fears and jealousies about his soul state, and was altogether unsatisfied about his interest in Christ, but that soon after he was confined to his bed the Lord afforded him his comforting presence, cleared up his interest, and removed his fears. After this he continued still clear and peaceful in his soul, and sweetly and wholly resigned to the Lord's will until death. While he had strength to speak much, he was free and forward to discourse of God and divine things. One time, as two other of the elders were with him, he exhorted them to continue steadfast and faithful to God's truth and cause. For, he said, if he had a thousand souls, he could freely venture them all upon the doctrines which had been taught them in the congregation. One time, when I took leave of him, he burst out into tears, saying, I had been the messenger of the Lord of hosts to him, whom the Lord had sent to call him out of the broad way of destruction. For some days before his decease, he could speak very little, but to all appearance with a great deal of serenity and sweetness of soul, he fell asleep in Jesus. There have been very comfortable instances of little children among us. Two sisters, the one being about seven, the other about nine years of age, were hopefully converted that summer when religion was so much revived here. I discourse with them both very lately, and both from their own account and the account of their parents, there appears to have been a lasting and thorough change wrought in them. They speak of their soul experiences with a very becoming gravity and apparent impression of the things they speak of. The Angus was awakened by hearing the word preached. She told me she heard in sermons that except persons were convinced and converted, they would surely go to hell, and she knew she was not converted. This set her to praying with great earnestness, with tears and cries. Yet her fears and distress continued for several days, till one time as she was praying her heart, she said, was drawn out in great love to God. And as she thought of heaven and being with God, she was filled with sweetness and delight." I could not find by her that she had at that time any explicit particular thoughts about Christ as a Redeemer, but she said she knew then that Christ had died for sinners. She told me she often found such delight and love to God since as she did then, and at such times she was very willing to die that she might be with God. But she said she was sometimes afraid yet of going to hell. I asked her if she was troubled at any time when she was not afraid of going to hell. She said yes. I asked her what she was troubled for then. She says because she had done ill to God, meaning that she had done evil and sin against God. 
Some time after she first found comfort, one night when her father and all the rest of the family but her mother and herself were gone to a private society, she said to her mother that the people were singing and praying where her father was gone, and desired her mother to do the same with her. And after they were gone to bed, she desired her mother to sing some songs which she had by her heart, for she said she did not want to go to sleep. Her sister was brought into trouble about her soul that same summer by sickness. It continued with her some time after her recovery until one day, coming home from meeting, as she heard some people speaking about Christ in heaven, her heart was inflamed with love to Christ. Thus, sir, I have endeavored to give a brief account of the revival of religion among us in these parts, in which I have endeavored all along to be conscientiously exact in relating things according to the naked truth, knowing that I must not speak wickedly, even for God, nor talk deceitfully for Him. And upon the whole, I must say, it is beyond all dispute with me, and I think it is beyond all reasonable contradiction, that God has carried on a great and glorious work of His grace among us. Samuel Blair this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required 
nay, what he never knew.